that time again it's that time of week where you come to listen to me talk and i don't get paid nothing because i like to work for free apparently <laughs> just so you know i never sing i don't know what made me decide to sing but there you have it record it and put it in your book because you're not going to hear it again what's up you're listening to the life in paradise podcast which actually has nothing to do with living in paradise unless you call corpus christi paradise which i'm sure some people do I do like it here, but it's not quite paradise. Anyway, my name's Brandon Harper, and I do this about once a week. I record all the thoughts that I gather throughout my week of daily life. I'm a regular dude with a regular job, lots of opinions, and I come here to put them out there. And I would encourage you to do the same. It's free almost to get into podcasting. The better you want the sound to be, the more money you got to spend. Which, excuse the echo... I'm in a hard service room. I don't know if you can hear it anymore. I got blankets and everything hung up all over the walls. Anyway, this is the intro. Sit back, relax, and give me the pull start to your lawnmower for about the next 30 or 45 minutes, if you know what I mean. just fly by but i like blink and it goes from monday to sunday don't know how but i tell you what i do know i do know that indian food is freaking good and if you don't like it you haven't tried it enough i don't care who you are i don't care what you grew up eating i don't care what you're used to i don't care if you're a texture guy indian food is freaking good and here's why because they have a totally different set of flavors and spices that we don't have and I mean, I guess if you're one of those people who's like, I only grew up eating pot roast. I like pot roast. I'm a meat and potatoes kind of guy. That's all I'm going to eat. I don't eat nothing else. Then sure. You know what? You stay home, eat your pot roast. But I'm going to go to Pavi Express, which is Corpus Christi's only Indian food fair restaurant. And we ate there about a year, year and a half ago. It wasn't too long after we opened. We went there for lunch one time. And we left there, we were all kind of disappointed, and it was just like overpriced, and the quality of the food didn't seem that good. Well, the other day, I talked to a buddy of mine who was similar to the guy who's like, that's all I've ever eaten is tacos. I don't like nothing but tacos. I'm going to eat tacos till I die. And he was like, dude, I went and ate Indian food, and it was so good. So after him telling me about his Indian food experience, it made me have the craving for it. So I looked up Indian food restaurants. We had four before COVID. Now we're down to one. I hope they make it. So this is the same one that we went to for lunch. I called, I placed an order. 
I overordered because I wanted to try a bunch of different stuff and I wanted to have leftovers to eat on throughout the week. Man, you walk into this place and there's four Indian people and a kitchen and a counter and a few tables. They're not trying to create ambiance. They don't care about the lighting or what it sounds like or what it smells like. They're there to make their home cooked food and sell it to you. And by golly, is it freaking good. We missed the mark on the first trip. For whatever reason, we thought it was bad. The stuff that I had last night was phenomenal. Homemade non. Everything's from scratch. Man, it was so good. And it's kind of intimidating to eat Indian food because you, you look at a menu and it's like, Gupta, Dabidut. And you're like, well, I don't know what any of this stuff is. And so like, I took the time and Googled all the things on the menu that I didn't know what they were. And it made it a lot easier. And I probably should have taken notes somewhere because I will not remember them. And the next time I'll have to do the same thing. Anyway, I don't know what my whole point was. Indian food is good. You should try new foods because you never know if you might try something that you like better than what you had eaten before. I don't understand when people are like, I don't like to try new things. I just don't get it. But to me, that is my favorite part about traveling. Well, one of my most favorite parts is trying new foods. I have a dream. One day, I want to produce a, a documentary where I travel around the world and I find people who introduce me to their grandmothers and we spend a day or two with the grandmother cooking in the kitchen, traditional foods with the family and video it and air it so everyone can see. And also include like the recipes. And I know those old ladies don't use recipes, but we can make one up so you can try it at home. Where I will get the time and money to produce this worldwide documentary, I do not know. But if you're interested in funding it, let me know. We can talk. You know, one thing that I've been thinking about looking at this uh, transition of power from Biden to Trump, or actually lack thereof, is how important it is to me to have someone lead the country who's tough. And I'm not going to sit here and say Trump's tough. He likes to think he's a New York tough guy. We don't know how tough he is. Put that man in some pain and we'll see. But guys like Marcus Luttrell and these famous Navy SEALs, like those guys are tough. But I can tell you for sure that Joe Biden is not tough. I can tell you I don't know about Trump. I can tell you I know for sure about the Navy SEALs. I can tell you I know for sure Biden is not a tough person. And you know, Trump caught a lot of flack for moving about after and before he had COVID, you know? And, and from my perspective, we need a guy that is not scared of COVID. Now, there's a difference between being stupid and brave. And I think there's a fine line there. But if you knowingly do something that someone else calls stupid and you know it's stupid, but you're doing it for a reason, then that's bravery. And I thought about Winston Churchill. I don't remember all the specifics. I mean, if you want to fact check me, you can do it. Call me out, whatever. But I think that there was an an instance where he gets up on a building that was being bombed or or he gets up on top of a building in the middle of a city that was being bombed from the air, airstrikes, and he gives a speech amongst all the bombs coming down. And some may say that's stupid, but I would say it's bravery. It's getting up. It's showing the people that you're leading that you're right there with them. If they're stuck in the city and they can't go anywhere, you know what? You're there with them, too. And it just bothers me that Biden just hides out in his basement. I mean, he hardly ever comes out and says anything because he's scared. Okay, whatever. That's fine. He's scared. He's old. He's at risk. I just, I don't know. I don't like the fact that he's not a leader. He's not a leader. Most politicians aren't. It's like I always say. But man, if he's in as good of health 
as everyone says, he's got nothing to worry about. He'll get the same magic potion that Trump got. It just says something to the people. You're not willing to come out of your house. I don't like it. Leaders put themselves in harm's way to demonstrate strength. That's it. And maybe they shouldn't. Maybe you think that leaders should be like Daniel Ortega in Nicaragua, who he doesn't even come out after his country gets blasted by a hurricane. He doesn't come out and talk to his people about COVID. He doesn't address anyone about anything because he's not a leader. But maybe you like that. Maybe you appreciate that. Maybe you think the president should be less visible. I don't. We are entitled to see it differently. I want my leaders to be strong and show the people they're not scared to lock arms and go to battle. Which do you prefer? And for my next trick, I'm going to explain to you how to teach your dog a trick if you want to. I, um, I oftentimes get people asking me, how do I teach my dog to do, do this? How do I teach my dog to do that? I normally look at them and say, it doesn't matter because I'm going to tell you and you're not going to do it. <laughs> so that's normally what happens. They don't care enough to ask for the details. But I'm going to tell you how to teach your dog to go to the refrigerator and open it and bring you a drink. <clears throat> I'm going to go through it very, very, very quickly. If you decide you want to do it, you can hit me up and I'll walk you through it at a slower pace. But the reason that I chose this trick is because it's a fun one. It's pretty simple and you can do it without a bunch of other background training. So first thing you need to do is get your dog comfortable with carrying a beer can in its mouth or a Coke can or any type of can. Now, most dogs won't put it in their mouth. So what you do is put a koozie on it. You make it soft, easy for the dog to grab. This also helps the dog find it in the refrigerator. Once you get the whole trick down and you decide you're a Billy Badass, then you can delete the koozie and go from there. But until then, use the koozie. Obviously, there are size limitations on the dog. You can't have a dog that's too small to pick up a can. Also, if the dog doesn't want to or doesn't show any, any interest in, in picking up the can, you're going to have a hard time doing it. You really need a, a dog who likes to fetch or retrieve or has no problem picking things up in its mouth, which most dogs have no problem picking things up. So what you want to do is you want to have some treats and the can with the, with the koozie on it. It's also easier to start with an empty one because it doesn't, it's not as heavy. Dogs typically don't like to pick up heavy or dense things unless they're a Malinois or a pit bull, and they don't care. So you got the empty can, you got the koozie on it, throw it. You want to throw it and get the dog to go get it or whatever you have to do to get the dog to put it in its mouth. And then as soon as the dog puts it in its mouth, you reward the dog. Don't worry about it holding the can. You can let it drop it. You can let it go away, whatever. You instantly reward the dog when the can's in its mouth. You're going to go through the same scenario for a while until the dog sees you get out the can with the koozie on it. It starts to get all excited because it's about to put the can in its mouth. Then you can move on to the next step. But until then, this needs to happen once or twice per day, four or five repetitions per session. Very, very quick. You always want to quit before the dog wants to quit. So once the dog is willing to go fetch and grab it and bring it back to you, the next step is just to set, you set the can on the ground with the koozie on it and you back away and you convince the dog to pick it up and bring it to you. We are now shifting to try to get the dog to pick up something stationary and not something that's been thrown. That's the next step. Once you have that down, and that normally happens pretty quick, three, four or five days, you should be able to knock that one out. And it should be to the point where you set the can on the ground, the dog runs over, picks it up, brings it to you. That's it for now. Next step, you're going to set the can um, on like a chair, something that's elevated, not necessarily inside the refrigerator yet. If you're feeling really good about it, you can start in the fridge, 
Otherwise, I recommend like a dining room table chair, something of that height. And you're going to convince the dog to go get it, bring it back to you. Win a reward. That's it. Once the dog's happily doing that, then you can relocate it into the fridge. And I know we're going out of order here, but that's okay. It's called back chaining. So you then put the can in the refrigerator. You're going to run over to the fridge. You're going to open it with your hand. And you're going to tell the dog whatever word you've been giving it. Hopefully, the dog's going to reach in, grab it. And you're going to kind of step back a little bit. And then as soon as the dog gets to you, take the can from it, give it a treat. You're going to go through this for a while. The dog feet, dog needs to feel really comfortable going in there, grabbing it, and running out. Don't worry about the door yet. That comes next. Once you can run over, open the door, dog runs in there, grabs it, brings it back. Then you tie a rope to the door. And let me just say, like, you need to make sure that you're making this situational and that the dog doesn't start to go nuts every time you go to the refrigerator. Um, I'm pretty sure that that it won't happen unless you go overboard with your training. So just keep that in mind. Uh, you don't want it to be a distraction to life. And every time you go to the door, the dog runs in there and tries to grab something. So just remember that balance. So the next step, you're going to tie a rope onto the door, something the dog can grab and fling. And this, to complete this step, the dog needs to feel comfortable grabbing a rope in its mouth and playing like a little tug of war. And so if you can't convince the dog to grab a rope that's already tied onto the handle of the refrigerator, take that same rope. What I used was like some one inch line that was nylon and I tied a bunch of knots into it so the dog could grab it and have a good grip on it. And so you're going to take the whatever rope you're going to tie in the fridge, you're going to have it loose, have your knots tied in it, and it needs to be about, you know, at least in three quarters of an inch, maybe, maybe as small as a half inch, but three quarters of an inch to one inch in diameter, tie the knots in it so the dog can grab it, play some tug of war. You know, the dog goes to tug on the rope, you give it a treat. Dangle the rope back in front of the dog, get him to go back to it. As soon as he grabs it and tugs on it, you give him a treat. And then we're going to relocate the rope to the door. Now, before you try to ask him to just run over there and grab it, you need to grab the rope with your hand and play the same game that you were playing before you tied it onto the fridge, now that it's tied onto the fridge. And you're going to show it to him. Show him the rope. As soon as he grabs it, give him a treat. As soon as he grabs it, give him a treat. You're gonna, your hand will become less and less relevant in that picture. So you can either barely hold the rope with two fingers, or you can just put your hands right next to the rope to, to make it look like you're holding onto the rope. The idea is to fade your hand from the rope. But you need to really focus on the pulling part. So you need to give them to pull, and you pull back a little bit. Dog pulls, let go of the rope. Boom, fridge pops open. And then you convince them to run in there and grab the beer. This is not a short process. I had an old golden retriever named Blazer. I think he was seven or eight when I taught him this trick. And, I mean, I probably went a little bit faster than, than most people, but I want to say it was like uh, 10 sessions is what it took him. Now, he already had a lot of the pieces in place. So I would expect for the average person in a, in a decently motivated dog who doesn't have any pieces in place and a very, very persistent and consistent owner, and you're doing it twice a day, I think you could probably do it in maybe three weeks, four weeks. Timelines are nothing. Do not worry about timelines in the dog training world. All you worry about is progress from the day before. But that's probably a close estimate. It could be wrong. Doesn't mean your dog is stupid. It more than likely means you're not that good of a trainer. People don't understand that. 
I get told all the time, oh, you're so lucky your dog listens to you. I said, I know. It just, it trained itself. I had nothing to do with it. You know, it just listens to me. Everything I tell it to do, it just does it. I don't know how it came pre-programmed. And they're like, really? (laughs) I just go with it because I think it's funny. So that's it. That's how you teach your dog to run to the fridge, open it, grab a beer, and bring it to you. And one thing that's tough is to get the fridge closed. With my dog, Blazer, he just happened to fling the rope hard enough that it bought him just enough time to stick his mouth in there, grab the beer, pop back out, all with the door closed behind him. It was amazing. I have it on video somewhere. It was on a super grainy flip phone camera way back in the day. And I go, Blazer, go give me a beer. And he would run, grab it, flick it open, grab the beer. It would close and he'd run up to me. I was very proud of that dog. He was very stubborn, very hard-headed, didn't know much else. He loved to fetch ducks, but that was his trick. That's the trick he took with him. Speaking of tricks, I'm going to talk a little bit about socialism. And it's not the first time I know, but the reason that I feel compelled to talk about socialism is because there's a large portion of people who would like to see our country shift towards socialism. Now, I understand there's a spectrum. I know that people aren't saying, let's go 100% socialist. I know that. But every little step gets you closer to the end. And so it seems logical to me that if we educate people on the truths of socialism, maybe they won't feel that way. Because it's been tried over and over and over again, and it never works. It always fails. If it does work, it puts ceilings in place for the people who want to try the most. And I'm not a fan of that. And so I was thinking the other day, what... Why don't people, if they, if they believed in socialism and they thought it was good, why wouldn't people who felt this way develop a group amongst their family, close friends, acquaintances, whoever they want to include? And they say, hey, guys, why don't we all pitch in a little bit to this group, this fund? And then when someone falls on hard times and they can just pull the money out, you know, somebody has they have a need that they need to get met and they can't afford it then the money's there for them. We can all pitch in and help them. Why don't people do that? And the reason for that is because people that advocate socialism and social pools, they don't want to contribute. They expect the people that are really, really wealthy to contribute more than anyone else. And so it just goes back to this whole thing, like everyone wants change, but no one wants to be the ones to change. They all feel like that some other group should change. Because if they truly felt compelled to contribute to a pool in order to help the less fortunate, they would do it. They would organize it and make it happen. But deep down inside, people look out for themselves first. And sure, it's great to be generous. It's really good. It's a good thing. But don't deny it that, that most people, they're really in it for themselves. And I know that sounds bad. And I know you would never say, well, I, I am in it for myself. So yeah, that's me. Because most people would say, well, I'm not just in it for myself. It's not all about me. That's what people say. Your actions speak louder than your words. And it's okay to be all about you. It's okay. Like It's it's nice to be generous and giving, but it's not expected. And of course, ethics comes into play, right? It's not good to rip people off or do things unethical to prevent yourself from a loss or a compromised situation. But when it comes down to -to day-to-day business... We make decisions that affect us and our household and our immediate family above all else. 
And I don't see a problem with that. And I really have a hard time listening to someone who thinks that we should have a more social structure of government telling me that if they can't show me what they've done. They can't prove to me that that's how they feel because that's the actions that they followed. So don't come to me if you work at some retail store and you've never had a real job, you've never had a career, you've never had any property, you've never owned anything, you've never sold anything, you've never bought real estate, you've had cars repossessed, and tell me how to run the country. I'm sorry, but you do not know what you're talking about. Hey, and if that's not you, then you have nothing to worry about. But we're at this place now where people are like, oh, yes, we should pay off everyone's student debt because it'd be nice. What are you talking about? Okay, let's just say that we do. Let's just say that we tax someone else and we take their money so that we can pay off student debt. For what? For all, everyone who's got any bit of student debt whatsoever. Okay, however many billions of dollars that is, we wipe it all clean. What about the class of 2022? What about 2023? What about 24, 25? We just going to do this every 25 or 50 years? Just wipe, wipe it all clean every 10 years? No, people do not think. If you picture and you desire a more socialist country where, where we have more people contributing to the government and more distributions, you should already be giving away money. You shouldn't need the government to take it from you. And that's what I don't understand. People like these super wealthy actors who like, yeah, the tax rate should be higher. It should be higher. Well, then why don't you just give away more of your money? Why, why do you need the government to take it and process it? It will go farther if you give it directly to a charity. And sure, some of these people, they have their own charities. They have the events. They do the fundraising. We don't have any idea how much money really goes back to the cause. But don't sit here and tell me that some guy who makes $150,000 a year should pay more in taxes just because. You know, it's, it's always the person above you that, that needs to get taxed. For the guy that's making 150, he doesn't think he should get taxed. It should be the guy that makes 300. For the guy that makes 300, he shouldn't get taxed. It should be the guy who makes 550. There's always someone who makes more, and there's always someone who makes less. And I'm okay with a little bit of sliding graduation. Like the more you make, the more you pay. I'm okay with a little bit. But we're now getting ready to talk about 40%, 38 to 40%. No, nah, man. Down to zero, right? So it'd be different if we if the if the minimum was twenty percent and the max was forty percent, but the minimum is zero and the max is forty. That's just too big. That's too big. It cuts incentives. It keeps people. You know, they look at their tax bracket and they figure out. You know what? It's cheaper for me to be less productive. I will make more money. I can be less productive, pay lower tax rate, and still make more money. Because they, the way that the numbers work, you get right there in that bracket on, on the border of it, and you can go either way. And that right there is a perfect example of how it disincentivizes productivity. Once again, this can all be changed culturally. We can teach our children that it's good to give. We can teach them that it's, it's helpful to give to the less fortunate and that we should clean out our closets once a year and go give them to people underneath a bridge and not, and not tell them that they have to, like, advocate that the government forcefully take money so that they can redistribute it. I think that, that money given to charity should be a tax write-off. You know, it should be. I think they should do a good job keeping track of who's legit and who's not. Um, but the general public has no idea that, like, certain quote-unquote charities are, are thievery. Uh, Wounded Warrior Project, Red Cross. Red Cross gets a ton of flack. No one knows about it. They've just, they built a brand I think the CEO of Red Cross makes like over a couple million dollars a year. 
It's a nonprofit organization. So if you believe in socialism, go find someone and give them your money. If you don't believe in socialism, you believe in capitalism, teach your kids that it's good to give things away. And, and you know, this is one of those things that's like we take a side. You know, we're quick to take a side. And it's and I'm guilty of it. I'll, I'll sit here and tell you I have been known to take sides many a times. But in certain cases, I feel like, you know, obviously capitalism, socialism, that is a place where I think a side should be taken and you should have an opinion. And if you don't, well, you need to take the time to form one. But going back to the two sides thing, in regards to this voter fraud allegations and accusations and lawsuits that are being filed, it's amazing to me how quick people are to take a side and how half the population is running around saying, there's no evidence of voter fraud. This is all stupid. He's wasting time and money. He should not be doing this. And the other half's running around saying, they cheated him. He won fair and square. He couldn't lose that many votes through tonight. They're out to get him. They always have been. Neither side knows any details. It's all still unfolding. And so why can't we just sit back and say, you know what? I don't know. I'm not sure. The numbers look a little squirrely. Sure, they do. But show me how they're not. And then I'll pick a side. I mean, something so complex is election fraud in multiple states with mail-in ballots and squirrely electronics. Like, how could you sit here and tell me that there is or is not voter fraud and be so certain? I mean, aren't you glad that our, our legal system isn't like that or our, our judicial system that <laughs> our trials don't work that way? I mean, nothing matters until you get into court. It doesn't matter that Rudy Giuliani's got his hair dye running down his face or that his glasses are so thick it looks like it's going to set his eyeballs on fire. None of that matters. All that matters is what the court says. And I've had people, you know, message me on Facebook trying to trying to get me into a big argument. Do you think there was cheating? Assuming probably that I would say, hell yes, there was. That's because they don't know me very well. Because my answer is, I have no clue. I do not know. You know, it's the same way with these court cases. The media sensationalizes a person who gets shot by the cops, especially if it's a black person. All of a sudden, we're running around screaming that he was killed because he was black. We haven't, all, even if we've just seen a video, that's not enough. It's not enough. I mean, yes, maybe they killed him intentionally, but how can we say it's because of their skin color? No, as time goes by, and we see that this person has a long history with the KKK, or they are a a closet skinhead, or whatever, then we can start to say those kinds of things. But until then, we have to just be patient. And it's it's better just to not take a side and just say, I don't know, I'm going to let things unfold, and then I'll make a decision. I don't have enough information. People just have a hard time doing that. I mean, digging up dirt is good. Let's let Trump spend money, assuming it's his money and not my money, trying to figure out if there was fraud in the election. I don't see how that could be a bad thing. You know, when they were trying to hang him for Russian collusion, <laughs> you know, you think there was evidence there when they started? No. You start a trial with minimal evidence. Then you go through a process. It's called discovery. That's when you really go digging. You look for things and you have a deposition. You interview people. You get information from them. So let them dig. I mean, the Democrats should say, yep, yeah, go ahead. It's open books. Have, have a look at it. Look at everything you want. Going back to the Russian collusion thing. I mean, I was like, you know what? Let them dig. Let them look. They can look as long as they want. If they find something and expose it, well, then there we go. 
It was worth it. And what's funny is that if evidence is found, the they'll find a way to to debunk it or dispute it. You know, and it goes both ways. I'm not I'm not saying that the Republicans don't do it, but just look at the Hunter Biden laptop thing. I mean, the Democratic Party didn't even acknowledge that. They didn't even respond to it. They didn't even say it was fake. They were just told to stay away from it. That was evidence. They found evidence, but it meant nothing. So, you know, they they don't want Trump to dig because of what he might find. And sure enough, there's going to be some discrepancies. You can't have 300 votes and have zero discrepancies. Chances are it will not be enough to overturn the election. But it's good for the process to let people dig. You know, if people want to, let them go. It's not going to hurt anything. I was thinking about something the other day. Imagine, imagine that. But how we transitioned from, you know, paper photos and, and photos being printed into digital from about the time of like the mid 90s to 2010, 2005, somewhere in there. So we got like a 10 or 15 year window where it was slowly going, where it kind of had gone to digital in the late 90s. But the problem was we didn't really have a way to store or organize them. And sure, we we kind of did have a way to store them at the time, but as technology changed and got more efficient, we changed our mediums. You know, I remember the first camera, digital camera, that had like some little floppy disk, and the only thing it would fit inside was that camera. And the world has lost all those pictures. And so I was thinking that there's going to be a gap. There's going to be a period of, of time where we don't have a lot of, of media, a lot of pictures or video, because it got taken, and then it got stored on a camera, or only on a computer, and then the computer died, and it got thrown away. You know, it wasn't until recently, until we started putting things on the cloud. So I think that we're going to go back in history, and we're going to look, and there's going to be a 10 or 15 year window where we don't have many pictures and, and videos of things. And, um, you know, it's kind of sad a little bit, but at the same time, it's kind of cool that I live right through the middle of that. And I'll be able to tell the story if I live long enough. Even now, even now, there's not a really, really good way. Well, there might be now. I don't know. But to organize and store your photos forever. Because if you put them on the cloud, you have to pay monthly. And so I don't know. I mean, I haven't come across an app that does a really good job of organizing photos. I still don't understand why you can't tag photos. I know you can, kind of, but you can put them in certain albums. But I'd like to be able to snap a photo, and then a, deal, a little bar pops up, and it's like tag. And and not just tag it with someone's name or another person, but just say, you know, dog, hunting, ducks, or or whatever. So I could go back and search for, you know, house, Conroe, 2003. And all those pictures that I had tagged would pop up. It seems like a really cool feature. I don't know why it's not happening. If someone could make a call, make that happen, please, and thank you by lunch on Monday. You're welcome. Speaking of magic tricks, here we are. We got the vaccine. I don't remember what I said on the podcast, but I think I said there would be no vaccine. <laughs> it's, not very, it's not very often that I'm wrong. You know, I'm right most of the time. So I'll, I'll, I'll announce it when I'm wrong. But yeah, they threw it into hyperdrive. They have the vaccine. 
A friend of mine here in town owns a cold storage facility. And I think he's the only one that has like super cold uh, storage. So the county judge called him and said, hey, we got X amount of doses of this vaccine. Can we come store it at your place? And I think they sorted out a deal and I think it's in route. So here we go. It's vaccine time. Like I mentioned, the next round of fights will be who pays for them, who gets them, who doesn't get them, all that stuff. And recently, Trump signed an executive order that I do not approve of. And this kind of ties in socialism into medicine. So Trump signed an executive order that limited how much drug companies can sell drugs for in the U.S. That's one part of it. I'm not a fan of that. Another part of it was that he, he limited drug companies on the amount of that they could receive for their drugs overseas, right? So a lot of these countries, they have a maximum on what their drugs can be sold for. And what what ends up happening is that drug companies start in the U.S. because that's the, that's the world's biggest market. So the FDA, the Food and Drug Administration, has all these protocols in place that a drug has to meet before it goes out to market. You have to do all these studies. You have to prove that it's effective. You have to prove that it's safe. And so all of these things add to the cost. Because if you didn't have that, you could just produce the drug and sell it. And people may die. It may or may not work. Who knows what would happen? So so they have the, the additional cost of all that. And in order to cover that cost, they have to price the drug accordingly. They have to say, well, we need to get this much per dose. We expect this many doses per year. It's going to take this many years to pay off our investment. And so they have to charge more to cover that. But if they go overseas and they sell their drugs and the government of, let's just say Switzerland says, sorry, you cannot sell that drug for more than $10 per pill. Then the U S goes, well, okay, you know what? We're already making it in the U S it doesn't really cost us that much to make it and ship it here. So that's better than making nothing. Right? So they're just picking up a little bit of profit from these foreign sales. So now what Trump did is says, Nope, uh, you can no longer sell them cheaper to these foreign countries than you sell them in the U.S. And these guys are like, okay, well, we'll just quit selling them in the foreign countries, which may sound great to a 12-year-old. But now that extra cost, the extra revenue that they would have gotten from selling that drug overseas is now gone. There's no extra revenue. So now they have to regenerate that revenue inside the U.S., and if they're limited on what they can sell the drug for in the U.S., they will naturally have to lower their initial investment in research and development. I'm going to do a quick analogy. I may have lost some people there. Let's just say that I own a bicycle factory in Corpus Christi. The law in Texas says before you can sell bicycles, you have to make sure they're safe. You have to make sure they function properly and no one can get hurt. And I sell them. I say, hey, uh, Mr. Bicycle Regulation Guy, how much does it cost to do those tests? Well, it's $3,000 for one test and $4,000 for another test. So now on top of my bicycle manufacturing, I've already got $7,000 worth of tests that I have to pay for. When I go to sell my bicycles, I need to make up the money to cover those tests. But I can go to Mexico and there's no testing required. And I can sell my bicycles for way less. Now I have two markets. I have the Mexico market and the U.S. market. So I go to Mexico and I sell my bikes for way less. Same exact bicycle. The only difference is it hasn't gone through the testing. And now the government says, hey, you cannot sell that bicycle in Mexico for less money. 
And then I say, well, if I try to sell it for the same money here, it won't sell because they'll just buy other bicycles that are less. And they say, well, sorry. Okay, so now that cuts out a big chunk of my income. And what does that do? It raises the price of the drug in the U.S. <laughs> I'm sorry. It would make the bicycles more expensive now in the U.S. Because I still have to cover all that cost, the sunk cost and the research and development. But remember, Trump set a limit on the price of bicycles in the U.S. also. So now I'm faced with, you know, i got to pay $7,000 for the testing. I can no longer sell my bicycles to Mexico. And I can't even sell my bicycles for what I need to sell them for to cover the testing. You know what? I'm just not going to make bicycles. I'm not going to compete in the bicycle market. And what happens when there's less competition? Prices go up. The whole point of this is that if you move closer to free market capitalism, you'll get a better experience for the company and the consumer. Now, obviously we can't say, yeah, let's just let people sell drugs without any kind of testing. I'm not advocating that. I am, however, advocating that we don't need to verify that a drug is effective. We do need to make sure it's safe, but the market will verify the efficacy. If I make a heart attack pill and it's supposed to keep you from having heart attacks and I know that it's not going to work because I've done testing in my own and I sell them and they don't prevent heart attacks, what happens? I go out of business. It won't take long, but I go out of business. And sure, you know what? You've got some poor unsuspecting people who take this pill thinking that they're going to survive a heart attack. But you know what? They wouldn't have as much trust in the drug companies. They wouldn't have as much faith in them. They'd be more skeptical. So maybe the public would require testing. Who knows? But we don't require the government to prove that everything else is effective or that anything else is effective. So my resolution would be strip away all of the costs that it takes to prove that something works. And let's just prove that it's effective. And if we do that, and we still allow them to sell their drugs overseas, even if it's cheaper than what it is here, it will still contribute to a lower price for us. Free market is normally the answer. And if you think that there's a free market right now in, in healthcare, no, you're wrong. There's no one to blame in big pharma other than regulations. And in regards to like the, the people who claim that doctors are responsible for overprescribing drugs, I'm going to reserve judgment on that. I don't really know enough details to know if doctors realized what they were doing or their intentions. Obviously, if someone knew how dangerous drugs were and they were prescribing them to people, putting them in danger, then yes, they should be held accountable for that. There is a threshold of ethics that has to be maintained. But regardless, if we let the pharmaceutical market and the medical industry work itself out, it'd be better for everyone. You can just go ahead and uh, title that segment Trump's Pharma Flop. It'll be interesting to see what happens because it looks good from afar. It sounds good. I don't see Biden undoing it, but we'll see. I mean, I feel like if he did, um, his supporters would go nuts. Or maybe they would be happy just because Trump put it in place. That's the thing now is that we're so divided on teams. Uh, who was it? I don't know. Somebody. Somebody on the left. I think Pelosi said she would not take a vaccine if Trump had anything to do with it. <laughs> you crazy woman. All right. I think that's going to wrap up today's program. It's 551. I got to go do the dog thing. Finish editing this thing. Eat leftover Indian food for dinner, which is making me very, very happy. 
I do like Indian food very, very much. So that's it. We're calling it. Thanks for listening to the Life in Paradise podcast. You can email me at brandon at newacesbrewing.com. That's N-U-E-C-E-S. People have a hard time with that word. N-U-E-C-E-S. It's a Spanish word that means nuts. So that's it. Thanks again for listening. Get out there. Put yourself in harm's way if you're a leader. Go give some money away. Teach your dog a new trick. Don't take a side so quick. And most of all, keep it tranquilo. Come on,